good. All right. Well, I don't know how. Is that me? <laughs> Not sure how many of you have ever worn one of these microphones, but I've just been uh, terrified all morning of wearing it into the restroom and <laughs> giving you a little more of an intro than you were looking for this morning. But. <laughs> You know, if that's a good... Well, good morning, everyone. So I've been asked to speech, uh, speak this morning in Reg's absence, so I thank you for the opportunity, and I'd like to open in prayer. So, Mighty God, I just thank you for uh, this beautiful day. I thank you for this fellowship and uh, for all the people here. I pray that you would uh, speak through me and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I want to thank you all for coming out. I have uh, a whole section over here, a lot of my friends from Insight, uh, BJJ. Uh, I wanted to thank them specifically for coming out and supporting me. Um, I've done some public speaking before, but it's definitely not my comfort zone. So to have them here really means a lot. I appreciate it, guys. Um, I'd taken a, a speech class in college, and one of the tricks they teach you to, to deal with being nervous in public is to picture your audience in their underpants. So <laughs> didn't, didn't really figure that was appropriate for this venue, so I, I thought I'd try to get a, get a few jokes going and get you guys laughing. So feel free to laugh at me or with me or whatever, <laughs> however it goes today. We'll see how it shakes out. But I was considering what to speak about this morning, and I wanted to pick a topic that you all would find interesting and worthy of spending your time. I'd milled it around for a while and was discussing it with Deborah when she mentioned how much she had enjoyed the Sunday when Vanita Schlopfeld had given her testimony. She suggested I share my testimony as we were commanded in 1 Peter 3.15 to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that is in us. I enjoy hearing the various stories of how each believer came to know the Lord and how God has guided them along the way. I know in my life I've never heard the audible voice of the Lord but looking back on my life, I can definitely see how he was there all along directing my steps. My favorite verse is Proverbs 16:9. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I lived there in the same house all through high school. I was an athletic kid, and I played whatever sport was in season. Uh, my parents gave us a wonderful christ centered upbringing, and they both covered us in prayer every day. Thanks, Mom and Dad. <laughs> uh, I accepted Christ at a young age and attended church whenever the doors were open, oftentimes against my will. So like many folks who grew up in Christian homes, my testimony begins with salvation, with most of the story being my growth in and through Christ. As many of you know, I have two younger brothers and a younger sister, we were all active in the church, doing whatever was needed from cutting the grass to leadership positions. I was taught all the Bible stories, and I knew them well. I was active in our youth group and went to camp each summer. <coughs> Excuse me. I really liked our youth pastor and the group of kids, but during my freshman year of high school, the youth pastor came forward and admitted to an affair with one of the older students who is now college-aged. This shook my faith as both of these people were folks I had admired. I began to hang out with a different crowd and sought enjoyment in worldly things. 
I lived in this same manner for many years. I knew I was saved. I still believed in the Bible and Jesus' payment for my sins, but I began to view the Bible as nice stories and probably more allegorical than to be taken seriously. I still read the Bible periodically, but always felt like I was just barely scratching the surface. I had a lot of questions that I couldn't answer on my own. How did we get here? I accepted the Bible's account of creation being six literal days, but began to try and merge that belief with evolution. My justification being 2 Peter 3.8 when it says one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. I asked questions, but was made to feel foolish for questioning by our pastor at the time. He said I just needed to use faith to fill the gap between my questions and the Bible's answers. This didn't sit well with me. I could see evolution was foolish as a creation explanation. I mean, what are the chances of the complexity of life just happening? But I could also conceive of natural selection and things appearing to evolve and was taught this in school. So the answer I came up with was God created it, but things could evolve to surroundings and circumstances. I guess that was my version of putting a pin in it until I could investigate the matter further. Some other questions I didn't understand were, why did Jesus have to die, and why do people go to hell forever? Sure, Jesus was a good guy, but why did he have to die? I'm not really that bad. When you really start to think about all the Bible stories you learn as a child, they can seem pretty crazy. He was born from a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He rose from the dead. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that these stories are considered foolishness to those who are perishing. Well, I completed high school and headed off to college at the South Dakota School of Mines. I attended church very sporadically during this time. I viewed my salvation more as fire insurance than something to be nurtured and shared. I graduated college with a civil engineering degree, and I put in for a few jobs and had a few offers, but I really wanted a job at a copper mine in Arizona. It had a great starting salary and benefits. There were over 700 applicants for this job, but I was sure it was mine. When I spoke with the interviewers, it was like talking to old friends. After all, I'd prayed about it, and I knew best. <laughs> long story short, I made it into the final three applicants. Because there were so many applicants, it was a long, drawn-out process, and I'd turned down a couple other jobs in the meantime. I didn't get the job. I was crestfallen. I desperately tried to get one of the jobs I'd passed on, but they were already filled. I moved back home and lived with my folks. I lived at home for about six months, my routine being heading to the library and searching the newspapers from various cities for jobs and sending resumes all over the United States. Then I'd go home and open all the rejection letters that came in the mail that day. This period of time just happened to coincide with pheasant season, so I managed to go hunting almost every day too. <laughs> well, by the end of the six months, pheasant season was over and I'd finally had enough. I figured if I could get in front of an interviewer, I could get a job. So I loaded up my car and had a plan to go to Salt Lake City, to Las Vegas, to Phoenix, and back through Denver, and hope I had a job by the end of the trip. I only had $700, but I had friends in each town I'd graduated with, and they'd agreed to let me stay with them. I ended up in Salt Lake City at a friend of mine named Kenny Dubois's apartment. I asked him who he thought I should try for employment, and he gave me a short list. <clears throat> I called Granite Construction the next morning, and when the receptionist answered, I asked for the president of the company. <laughs> Being a naive young man, I didn't realize that you never get the president on the phone just cold calling. 
But God intervened on my behalf and he answered the phone. In fact, during the entire time I'd worked there, I'm not sure I ever got through to him directly again. <laughs> I remember making my pitch to him and he was kind of caught off guard wondering why he'd taken this call. <laughs> I went in the next morning for an interview. He hired me on the spot, asking if I could start that day. I ended up getting many of my college friends' jobs at Granite, and I stayed there for seven years. During this time, I advanced through the company and was making good money, but I knew something was missing. I started to go to church again, but I was lonely and wanted to get married and settle down. I'm not sure how many of you have been to Utah, but it's very heavily Mormon. <laughs> I knew I didn't want to marry a Mormon, but the pickings were pretty slim for Christian girls out there. <laughs> I had dated, but I knew none of the women I dated were who I wanted to marry. One day, the woman who had the office across from mine came over laughing mockingly and told me the intern she was assigned to mentor was from Texas and had asked her if she knew of any good Baptist churches around. Now, I'd been praying for God to send me a wife, so although I can be slow at times, this got my attention. <laughs> Well, lo and behold, Deborah Long showed up in Utah and was assigned to the job I was on. Deborah was told when she accepted the internship that she would be working in Dallas. A couple weeks before she was supposed to show up for work, they told her that Dallas was filled and she could either go to California, Nevada, or Utah. Well, thankfully God intervened on my behalf again and she chose Salt Lake City. The project I was assigned to was a very large one, and prior to getting started, we were having a lunch meeting at the Sizzler in Provo, Utah, to go over the job and to introduce this new intern. I was smitten. <laughs> I went home that night and phoned my mom to tell her I'd met my wife. <laughs> Six weeks later, I proposed, and we were married about a year after first meeting. That was almost 20 years ago. <laughs> Excuse me. I always knew I wanted to run my own company, and I'd been pursuing many options up to the time I met Deborah. I was just about to go to work for a friend of mine who owned a large construction company. He wanted to get into concrete work, and that was my area of expertise. We'd negotiated a base salary and then 30% of any profits I made. I was on the verge of taking this opportunity when I was drawn for a special unit deer hunt. Utah does lottery type drawings for their special unit hunts, and on average it takes 11 years to be drawn. This was my fourth year putting in for that tag. Deborah's dad came out on this hunt to help me harvest and scout, a, or scout and harvest a good deer. During this time, we talked a lot around the campfire and I found out that he was building mini storage buildings and had more work than he could perform. Over this week-long hunting trip, he made me an offer to put me into business and come help him build mini-storage. He did all the work in Houston, and I covered everything else. It was terrifying making this move. I had a pretty sure thing in Utah and had a lot of friends and contacts, but from what I'd seen of Texas, I liked it, and together, Deborah and I decided to give it a try. The hunt was during November of 2001, and December 2001, we were moving to Texas. Since meeting Deborah, I'd begun to take my faith more seriously again. 
That nagging in the back of my mind that I was merely scratching the surface of Scripture persisted. I began to try to look deeper into the Bible and be more vigilant about my daily reading and prayer life. As I grow older, every time I have changed my view on Scripture, it has been to take it more seriously. Now, I built many storage all over the United States from 2002 to 2008. We traveled to Florida, North Carolina, Tennessee, and many places in between. We also began to have kids, and I found out the joys and struggle of having to provide for them. <laughs> I could feel the construction market was sputtering, and I figured I needed to have a backup plan if the mini storage jobs dried up. This led me to purchase and open the first two Jimmy John stores in San Antonio. Together with my mom and dad, aunt and brother, we ran the Jimmy John stores from 2008 to 2013 when we sold them. We closed on the last sale late in the summer of 2013. I was praying, trying to figure out what to do next, when one of my closest friends from college, whom I'd gotten a job at Granite, called me and said he had an opportunity to buy a materials testing laboratory in Utah. He wanted me to fly out and review the books for him and see what I thought about the business. The books were a mess, but I could see the potential and asked him if he wanted a partner. I flew out to Utah in early December of 2013. By late December, we'd hammered out the deal and bought the company. I still enjoyed building things and would take projects when they came up. However, since we'd sold the Jimmy John stores, we weren't tethered to San Antonio any longer. I had originally purchased the land we live on now as a hunting property, but we felt the Lord leading us to move to Red Rock. It's funny to me how the Lord has been so faithful and gracious towards me, and yet when he asked me to step out and trust him, I second-guess and what if. Now, we really loved our church in San Antonio, and the kids and I had taken up jiu-jitsu. I was worried we wouldn't find another church or jiu-jitsu gym out in the backwoods of Bastrop, Texas. <laughs> but again, the Lord has blessed me beyond my wildest dreams. Now, around the time Jake was born in 2004, I found a Bible teacher named Chuck Missler. He was an engineer, and his style of teaching really resonated with me. He wasn't afraid of the hard questions I had, and he showed how the cutting edge of science and engineering didn't disprove the Bible as many claim. In fact, the more we knew and learned in science only further proved the Bible. Dr. Missler explained how scientists arrive at the millions and billions of years old universe, and how that doesn't contradict the biblical account of creation in six literal days. I listened to several of his cassette tapes, and I wanted more. Now, kids, cassettes are what came after 8-tracks, but before CDs. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I thought I may have to bring that a little more current, but figured everybody would know what a CD was. I enrolled in this class called Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. I remember thinking, what a stupid title. I don't need this class. I grew up in church, and I know all the stories. One of the things Missler says quite frequently is the only absolute barrier to the truth is the assumption you already have it. Well, I gave it a try and learned more in those 24 hours than I had in over 30 years of church and Sunday school combined. It lit a fire in me that still burns bright. When you really begin to comprehend what Jesus has done on your and my behalf, it's truly humbling. I ended up joining his online school called Koinonia House. I've gone through every book of the Bible verse by verse. This was a huge undertaking and consumed my time for much of the next three or four years. I could be found in my office 
listening to Dr. Missler go line by line through the Bible, taking quizzes or writing papers. This was a time of great spiritual growth for me. I will forever be indebted to Dr. Missler for his time and dedication to teaching God's Word. I learned that time is a physical property and God alone is outside of time. You and I stuck inside time are like people watching a parade. We see floats one by one as they go by. God being outside of time is, someone, is like someone in a helicopter above the parade, able to see the staging area, all the floats, and the finish line at the same time. God proves that in the Bible time and again by declaring the end from the beginning. The Bible is the only holy book from any religion or group that has 100% accuracy for prophecy. He taught me that whenever I have a passage of Scripture that is confusing or seemingly contradictory, to put Jesus right in the middle of it and see how it unravels to reveal more of Jesus' glory. In John 5.39, Jesus says, The Scriptures testify of me. And Matthew 5.17 and 18 tells us that not even a letter of the law will pass until all is fulfilled. Every person, place, name, etc. are placed by deliberate design of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is made up of 66 books by 40 authors written over a span of 2,000 years, and yet you can see the fingerprints of the Holy Spirit all throughout. One example would be from Genesis 5. Here we see a genealogy from Adam to Noah. So how many of you enjoy reading long lists of names from the Old Testament? <laughs> As I looked around during the scripture reading this morning, I swear I saw more than a few eyes glaze over. <laughs> Pretty boring stuff I would have passed over without a second thought, but once you learn to take the Bible seriously and believe that every person, name, place, etc. points to Jesus, it changes your perspective. So there were ten generations from Adam to Noah. In the scripture that we saw this morning, we see Adam. He lived 930 years. We see Seth, he lived 912 years, Enosh, 905, Canaan, 910 years, Mahalalel, it's a mouthful, Lived 895 years. Yared, 962. Enoch, was taken. Methuselah, Nine sixty nine Lamech seven 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 and Noah five hundred. So we have ten generations from Adam to Noah, and doing a study of the meaning of the Jewish roots of these names, it yields an interesting result. The word Adam means man. Seth, 
means appointed. Enosh means mortal. I'm losing my pen here. Canaan is sorrow. Mahalalel is the blessed God. Yared is shall come down. Enoch is teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech is despairing. Noah is comfort. Rest. So if we read that from the top, man appointed mortal sorrow the blessed God shall come down, teaching, his death shall bring despairing comfort or rest. Pretty, pretty interesting. It's, uh, so just in the genealogy of Noah, we see a good summary of the Christian faith tucked away. There's no way you could convince me that a group of Jewish rabbis conspired to add this to their most venerated or beloved scriptures. Not something to use for doctrine, but definitely a fingerprint of the Holy Spirit and it demonstrates the integrity of the design. The whole Bible is a pre-planned package, even though it was written in 66 books by 40 authors over 2,000 years. Another interesting study this scripture yields is a timeline of who is alive when and who would have known each other. For the sake of time, I won't go into that today, but many of the people on the list would have been alive at the same time and would have known each other very well. There is a widely held Jewish tradition that Enoch was given a prophecy that the flood would come at the death of his son, and it did. That's why he chose his son's name to mean his death shall bring. Now, can you imagine raising this child? <laughs> Every time he got a cold, everyone would be on pins and needles. <laughs> but when you realize that Methuselah lived longer than any other recorded person, you see God's grace and his desire that none should perish. God gave the people of Noah's day the longest time to repent. Methuselah lived 969 is the oldest recorded person in the Bible. I think that's just kind of another little interesting thing that, that God throws in there. Go ahead and erase this. So another example that we have of Jesus being uh, the center of Scripture, it's found in Numbers 2. Numbers 2 contains instructions for Israel's encampment and a census of the tribes. Again, this is pretty boring material that I used to look and see where the list started and ended and would just skip it. I'm not sure how many of you have tried to visualize the Israelites camping in the wilderness 
When I did, I just thought of something like a giant campground. You pitched your tent wherever you stopped. But the Lord gives very clear directions about how the Israelites were to camp. Why? Who cares where they pitched their tents? The Lord commanded that the tabernacle and the Levites were to be the center of the camp. Because the tribes were directed to camp in cardinal directions from the tabernacle, we can assume the tabernacle and camp of Levites to be a square so that each tribe could camp due east, north, south, or west, as the rabbis tried very hard to follow the commands precisely. When we use the width of the camps as set by the Levites, the other tribe would be that width and extend further away based on their numbers, so they could remain in cardinal directions and not be northeast or southwest, etc. Now the Levites weren't numbered because they belonged to the Lord. So have the Levites and the tabernacle at the center. That'll stay. To the east was the camp of Judah. Have 74,600 men. Issachar was 54,400 men and Zebulun 57,400 for a total of 186,400 men. I don't have the, the fancy uh, AV materials here, so you'll have to bear with me as I tape this up there. To the south... The tribe of Reuben, 46,500, Simeon, 59,300, and Gad, 45,650, for a total of 151,450 men. A lot of you can already see where I'm going with this. But. To the west, the tribe of Ephraim, 40,500, Manasseh, 32,200, and Benjamin, 35,400, for a total of 108,100 men. To the north, the tribe of Dan, 62,700, Asher, 41,500, and Naphtali, 53,400, for a total of 157,600 men. So when we map that out, we can see that the camp of Israel, if viewed from above, would be in the shape of a cross. Again, not something to base doctrine off of, but a definite fingerprint of the Holy Spirit and evidence of design. Whenever you have a problem or seeming contradiction in Scripture, put Jesus at the center and see what happens. Proverbs 25.2 tells us, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. I believe God has given us all kind of treasure to find in his word if we will do the work and search it out. So why did Jesus have to die? 
A witnessing tool I've used for several years now nails that down pretty directly. The tool was developed by Living Waters Ministry and is called Way of the Master. It begins by asking someone if they consider themselves to be a good person. Most answer yes, as I would have for many years. It then proceeds to ask them a few questions based on the Ten Commandments. Have you ever told a lie? What does that make you? They usually answer something human or something like that. Then I ask them, what if I told you a lie, what would you call me? They almost can't say liar fast enough. Have you ever stolen anything? What does that make you? This answer usually makes me laugh too because an unusually large number of people answer stealer instead of thief. <laughs> I never realized how many Pittsburgh fans there were. <laughs> Have you ever lusted after a man or woman? These are just a few of the commandments and clearly establish that I'm not good. If God were to judge me based upon the Ten Commandments, I'd be guilty by my own admission. The Ten Commandments aren't a list for us to follow because we clearly can't do it. They were meant to be a mirror to show us who we truly are and our need for a Savior. Now imagine yourself in a courtroom scenario. God is a good and righteous judge sitting on the throne. If God just overlooks my sin without punishing it, he's no longer a good judge. If I try to point out all the good I've done, or that I've done more good than bad, it's like trying to bribe the judge. It still doesn't work because there's still a penalty to be paid. If I say the judge is loving and kind so he won't condemn me, he's no longer a good and righteous judge if he doesn't punish sin. The only way, the only way for him to be able to legally dismiss my sin and remain a good and righteous judge is for him to pay my penalty. Jesus' final word on the cross was to telestai. It's an accounting term that means finished, paid in full. I don't have to accept his gift, but if I don't, I am left to pay for my sin. Blood is spiritual currency. Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. Because Jesus was perfect and sinless, his blood has infinite value and is acceptable payment for all sins. Our blood has been defiled by our sin, so if we choose to pay our debts ourselves, we must continue to pay forever. That's why Jesus had to die, and people who reject him go to hell forever. Thank you for your time. If you have any questions about how to accept Jesus' payment for your sin, see me afterwards. Thank you. God bless. <laughs>